Let's pray together. Our gracious and loving Father, we pray that this program will facilitate a great host of young men and women who are called and prepared and ready to go into the farthest corners of the earth in order to proclaim the gospel and to be healing agents of your grace in the places that you call them. And so we pray that you would use this for your great glory so that the name of Jesus would be honored and that you would be glorified in the whole earth. We pray for Carrie. We thank you for this partner organization, for its students, for its staff and faculty, for its administration, and we ask that you would bless them, that your face would shine upon them. And Father, this morning as we meet together, we need to hear from you. And so speak, speak and help us to listen. And we ask that you would fill Colin for this specific time, for this service, so that, Lord, you can speak through and in him. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 10, verse 30. This is the I am statement that's not an I am statement. Uh, many of the I am statements, as you know, come from, that you've been studying, come from John's gospel. But uh, this particular thought is throughout John's gospel. I and the Father are one. You heard it twice in the text that was read this morning in different ways. I am doing what my Father is doing. Um, Jesus and the Father are one. The Christian life is easy when all goes well. Good life, good friends, good health, good work, good fellowship. Sounds like a commercial, doesn't it? But what about when all is not going well? How do we respond when it seems like our connection to God, that, that unity that we have with God, that unity that draws us together in, in worship, in fellowship, in prayer, that unity that we were created to experience from the foundation of the world, what do we do when it feels like that connection is broken, when it's shattered, when it's lost? Some people think that the highest level of worship is, is that moment of pure joy when we are immersed in that feeling of unity with God. Um, there were just a few songs, but the worship was great. I want to stay. Um, I was hearing God's Spirit speak to me through the words, and when I hear those words, the ancient words, I remember all the Christians that sang those words before me. When I think of the modern songs, I think of those those composers, those writers that God inspired to lead us to him. Those kinds of joy-filled experiences, we've all had them. Those are the ones that I reread in my journal. And I want to relive them. But with a bit of perspective and a few decades of Christian living behind me, 
I don't think anymore that those moments are the highest levels of oneness with Christ. I think we draw closest to God when we thank him despite the pain, when in hardship we seek to act justly, when we submit to his lordship and declare our love and confidence in him, even when he seems far away. This passage, I and the Father are one, this verse, is one of the most important Christological statements in the New Testament. Go to your theology club and they will tell you all about it, right? Supporting the unity of the Father and the Son. The statement declares the divinity of Christ as understood very clearly by those who heard it for the first time because they decided to start throwing rocks at him. The Greek language is simple and determinate. It means what it says. In the, in the work of guarding the sheep, that's you and me, the Father and the Son are one. They are one in their work. The Father never works apart from the Son or in opposition to the Son, and the Son never works apart from the Father or in opposition to the Father. In context, I and the Father are one is not only a powerful theological statement about the unity of the Father and the Son, but it's also an invitation for you and me to join in that unity. There is no greater security for the believer. As Kenneth Gangel writes, there's no greater security, no safer shelter, no more sure salvation, and no more clear signature than this relationship to God to the God of the Bible through his son, the good shepherd. No wonder Paul could write, your life is now hidden with God, with Christ in God. The eternal unity of the Father and the Son is a guarantee for the believer of, the acceptance, of acceptance with God. Those who believe shall never perish. We cannot be removed from the Father's hand. Say that with me. We cannot be removed from the Father's hand. As wonderful as all this is, the broader context shows that this unity is not purchased cheaply. Believing in this unity of the Father and Son is not simply an abstract creedal proposition. Entering into this unity as a believer is not a passive intellectual exercise. Rather, it's an invitation for each believer to experience greater unity with God through the reforging of our very selves in a world of unfairness, sin, suffering, judgment, and even vengeance. This was a difficult sermon for me to prepare. As I explore the text surrounding John 10.30 to understand what this unity is, the chapters around it, I noticed some recurring and somewhat surprising themes in juxtaposition. The context of this unity is very emotional. It's connected to violence and sacrifice. And I hope my reflection today will draw you into unity and prepare you for lives of Christian service when we struggle to find the presence of God. Unity with God in Christ passes through suffering and transformation. These themes I discovered 
occur frequently in all the Gospels, but especially in John's. And I have time just to highlight a few examples so you can see where I'm going. In John chapter 10, we read about the unity. I and the Father are one. And then we see the sacrifice of the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And we see the violence. Again, his Jewish opponents took up stones to stone him. In verse 39, again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped from their grasp. In John 15, another I am statement that I think you've studied already. Coming up soon. All right, I'll just give you a little bit of a commercial promo for it. We read about the unity. I uh, remain in me as I, am, as I remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Later on in the chapter, Jesus says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And this section in chapter 15, of course, looks forward to the great work described of the Holy Spirit in chapter 16. And then in chapter 15, we are warned of sacrifice. Greater love has no, no one than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And if you are to dwell in oneness with Christ, the sacrifice is not just Christ's, but in some measure yours. And then Jesus warns us of the violence. This time, it's actually towards us, not towards Christ. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. And verse 24, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated me, both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. It's pretty intense to go from spiritual unity to being hated as a Christ follower. What does this mean to you and me? How do we understand this juxtaposition of unity and suffering, of peace with God amidst, amidst the hatred of men? Evangelical Protestantism talks a great deal about personal sin, very appropriately, in my view. Our, our sins keep us from God, and our acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice heals our broken relationship with God. In these passages, in these chapters that I've skimmed over, we see a great deal of human sin expressed towards Christ, but also towards others. Jesus teaches us that we should expect the world to treat us poorly. Take that on for a few minutes. Jesus teaches us that we should expect that the world treats us poorly. Even hate us. Why? Because we follow him. And so what I am going to end up talking about this morning is suffering under the sins of others. When people hate you, when they speak ill about you, this is difficult. Suffering, being a victim of poor treatment, sounds 
so passive. But in my personal experience, it's absolutely not passive. It's a bunch of emotions turned inward. One of the most powerful of these emotions is anger. When my wife Karen and I were church planting missionaries in Europe, we had the joy of leading a a group of people to Christ in a town that had been without a Protestant or evangelical witness for hundreds of years. After a short time, I baptized several of them and they expressed the desire to start a church in their community. I'd been commuting from another town. This was a joyous time for us, one of the greatest times in my life of service to Christ. Karen and I moved to their community to support this new church. I identified one of the young converts, Henry, as a potential leader. Henry was well-spoken, was a a manager in a, in a, a nursing home. I thought that he would be a great leader for the church. He was putting his life back together after a failed marriage. I asked him to, lead, to participate in leading communion at a worship service, and he took the opportunity to make public accusations about me. No one believed him, but he had an elusive charm, and many followed him out of the church when he left to join a cult shortly afterwards. I can remember to this day the words that he spoke to me. They were some of the most unkind words I have ever heard anyone say to me. I mentioned that my experience has been that I have felt God the most powerfully in the valley and not on the mountaintop. This was one of those times. As I listened to the terrible accusations he made about me, I had never experienced such calm. By God's grace, I listened and I responded peacefully. It was truly the work of the Holy Spirit in me. So this unity with God passes through self-sacrifice and the acknowledgement that God is the righteous judge, not me. Let me break that down. When we're mistreated, we instinctively respond as I did. It's not fair. It's not fair. Well, it probably isn't fair. There's no doubt that I was treated badly, and I'm sure each of you right now, as we sit in this holy place, can think of times when you were treated badly. I'm not doubting that you were mistreated, I don't doubt that injustice is common in the world. I saw much of it on the mission field in places like after we left Europe, in places like the Democratic Republic of the Congo, South Sudan, Kenya, and Rwanda. Whatever the degree of our hurt that we've experienced, the question is not whether we have been wronged, but what we're going to do about it before God. Like the prophet Jonah, our feelings about our own mistreatment are often self-reliant, accusatory, and self-consuming. They certainly were for me, as I'll tell you in a moment. Whereas, but there's been a change in how people deal with their anger and mistreatment. In times past, people directed those thoughts immediately towards God. 
now we might need a reminder to do so. A few years ago, I looked at a study that was done of the newspaper headlines that followed the 1906 earthquake in San Francisco and compared that to the headlines after the San Francisco earthquake in 1989. The difference was staggering. In 1906, in the newspaper, there were thoughts about why has God done this to us? What does this mean for us? There were spiritual questions. There was a divine component to understand the suffering that people had gone through. They were asking all the right difficult questions. Why has God allowed this? How can this be? In, uh, in the later earthquake, in 1989, there was none of that. Instead of looking to God with, uh, with the anger, with the, the, the concern, with the frustration with, of, of the injustice that was done, people turned on each other. Everyone was looking for someone to blame. You know, it was building standards. It was, it was, it was the government. It was, it was the immigrants. Whatever it was, everyone was looking for somebody else to blame. Our discipline needs to be able to take the first path, to think about what this means in our relationship with God. Sometimes suffering is so difficult to understand. And so in our own suffering, we can desire to take the place of Christ as judge. Drawing on John 16, 18, remember that verse? When he comes, the Holy Spirit, the advocate, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. Drawing on that verse, I will say briefly that taking control of my own anger and resentment and wanting to punish the other person is actually a form of unbelief. I'm taking the place of God. Since holding on to my unforgiveness is refusing the reason that the Father sent Christ into the world in the first place. Jesus is the Christ, the righteous judge. And so the first step in unity with God is recognizing that for all the unfairness and injustice that you have felt, that God is judge, not you. But I also don't want to minimize, this, the, uh, minimize sin and the ways it destroys lives. Have you ever heard Christians respond to sin by effectively saying, oh, don't worry about it? Or it's not a big deal? Just move on, get a grip, get over it. We need to refuse cheap grace, superficial forgiveness. Sin is sin, and it separates us from God. That means that without Christ, without Christ, the people that hurt you deserve to go to hell for it. Persecuted Christians cling to this truth. Ultimately, the only way to turn the other cheek to your oppressor, to walk the extra mile for the person that has wronged you, is to release control of your hurt to God. The only way to avoid a tit-for-tat spiral of, spiral of misdeeds is to accept that God will take care of whatever harm has been caused to you, of whatever you feel, and release it to him. The second challenge to unity with God is living rightly. I'll get back to my story. While I was self-controlled and spirit-filled when I was attacked, 
This did not last. Later, I was angry for a long time. This anger turned inward and I wrestled with a deep sense of failure. The church that I had planted was falling apart. Remember I said he took about a third of the congregation to start to join a cult. I had shown terrible discernment in letting Henry take leadership. It was my fault and I was angry. I was down and my sense of failure was taking me even further down to the point where I knew that I either had to forgive those harsh words or allow bitterness to take a permanent root in my heart. Far more important than the church or Henry, my very soul was in the balance. My soul was in the balance. It took me some time to forgive, and in those months before my spiritual release, as I said, that anger turned inward. I became somewhat depressed. Those were dark days for me, but instrumental for my faith. To fight the discipline of, to fight the sense of powerlessness, I began a discipline of thankfulness. Sometimes I had to work hard to find signs of God's goodness, but I always succeeded. Counting my blessings helped me to reorient my personal distress around God's sovereignty and God's grace. So this is another step of unity with Christ amidst the violence of the world. We have acknowledged already that those who have hurt me are sinners. And it's important to acknowledge acknowledge that those who have hurt you are sinners before God's judgment, not yours or mine. Like David before Saul, it's another step to acknowledge that I I cannot control their behavior, their response to God, only mine. And so we need to declare, I need to declare, In this world of trauma, of difficulty, of mistreatment, I will choose to act justly. As much as I am able, I will seek to be at peace even with those who have mistreated me. Like Joseph in Egypt with his traitorous brothers, that means reaching out, taking the initiative with those who have hurt you, probably more than once. This usually includes speaking the truth guided by the Spirit about sin and righteousness. What you have said, we might might acknowledge, has hurt me. What you have done has hurt me. Now, the person who has hurt you may not care, but actually, that doesn't matter since you've already decided to leave leave that person's response to God. We must act rightly, to please Christ, not out of some manipulative attempt to make the, the hurtful one do or say what we, we need them to hear, what, what we need to hear ourselves. For what they have done to me, I will guard my soul because I do not want to be led astray. I will not allow my soul to be invaded by hatred or anger. Instead, getting back to the passage, I want to be controlled by the love of God. Living rightly for God in the world, in this world of sin is difficult. It's more than that. It's impossible without Christ. This is part of the pruning that Jesus refers to in chapter 15. 
I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes. Finally, unity with God means receiving mercy. We've accepted God's judgment. We've chosen to act rightly. And now we need to confess that we are sinners, even when we've been wronged. As we struggle under the conviction of the Holy Spirit to release the judgment of sin to God, and as we labor perhaps repeatedly to act rightly when you have the opportunity to act unrighteously, you will understand how far you are from God's righteousness in your natural self. Like the disciple Peter after his betrayal of Christ, you will cry out to God to help you to follow him, to rid yourself of selfish and angry thoughts, to give you rest from your pain, and to put joy in your heart again. Unforgiveness is debilitating. It separates us from God. And in the end, all we can cry out to God is just to say, have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. Our negativity can be turned inwards and we can lose hope. But our Lord Jesus Christ can reach us there, even there, perhaps especially there. My faith and my identity as a man of God, as a husband, as a father, and as a friend has been strengthened far more in the times of trial and darkness than in times of ease and blessing. And as I struggle, I realize the gravity of my own sinfulness and my capacity for sin, even as I suffer for the wrongdoing of others. Like the criminal on the cross beside Jesus, I am both victim and perpetrator of sin. And so for what I have done, for what I have done, for the violence in my own heart, I deserve to go to hell. And so may God have mercy on me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Spurred by this text about the unity of the Father and Son and the question of how sacrifice and violence are, and connectedness with God uh, are connected to the oneness of God, I've shared some of my own experiences I've been mistreated by fellow believers and how I eventually released my pain to God. Some of you in this room today may relate. You may be experiencing separation and even anger towards family members, towards coworkers, towards friends. Objectively, the hurt may be great or it may be small. I may have shared too much for some and not enough for others about inner pain. And I am sure that many of you have experienced that kind of pain far worse for far longer. Perhaps you are still in that dark place today. For you and for all of us, the difficult path to unity with God may have many chapters ahead. And so as we live with people that hurt us, as we struggle to act rightly, we can know that the Holy Spirit is present in this journey as we respond to the righteousness of God, even in our pain, and acknowledge that we all need Jesus. Amen? Say that with me. We all need Jesus. We all need Jesus.
Some of you here might not know what I'm talking about. (laughs) If you're living in a period of peace, joy, and thankfulness in your life, I rejoice with you. You don't need to be looking around for anything down uh, to be down about. Continue in your thankfulness that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. I do hope, however, that you will remember that the very struggle, the very human struggle that we have to enter into the unity of the Father and the Son, that unity that is promised us by Jesus, uh, I hope you'll remember this message this morning. The I am statements of Christ are surrounded by deep emotion. Those around Jesus feel anger and even hatred. They speak and act in fear and violence. Those around us can do that too. We can do it too. Some of you might be feeling uncomfortable right now as you struggle to find God in your own pain, disappointment, or perhaps anger towards others or anger with God. I urge you to listen to the voice of the Spirit and offer to God those dark and powerful feelings that keep us in the valley. In closing, I would just like us to read these bullet points together, and then I'll close with a prayer. Three steps to unity with God. Acknowledging, let's say it together, it's not fair. God will judge, not me. Those who have hurt me are sinners, but I will act justly. I too am a sinner. May God have mercy on me. Let's pray. Jesus, you and the Father are one. What a high and majestic thought, the unity of the Father and the Son. Even more so, you want us to enter into that living unity. Help us, Jesus, to make you Lord of all that we are, even in our suffering and pain, our fear and our anger. Good shepherd, heal your sheep and lead us. Amen.